Thank you all for joining us. My name is Michael Tanner. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute where I specialize in social welfare policy. And I'm happy to have you all attending our book forum today on welfare for the rich. Uh, I've worked on social welfare issues for close to 30 years now. And those of you who've read my writings know that I find that most traditional welfare programs have been sort of self-defeating and uh, have done a great deal of harm for the people it's intended to help. That said, I've always found it fascinating that people are happy to criticize welfare for the poor, but they miss the fact that our government does a great deal in terms of providing welfare for the wealthy and that those programs seem to find less criticism and uh, less disapproval from the public than those programs that are trying to help those who most need help. Uh, certainly, uh, if we're going to waste money and we waste it on people who are poor, it's different than if we're going to waste money and waste it on people who are millionaires and billionaires. Uh, I think one is uh, well-intentioned, albeit sometimes not very effective. The other is pretty hard to defend on moral grounds as well as practical grounds. Now, that said, we have a very interesting forum today talking about uh, a new book. That new book is uh, available on Amazon. It's called Welfare for the Rich how your tax dollars end up in millionaires' pockets and what you can do about it. Uh, I understand it's actually on sale right now at Amazon. So as soon as the form's over, please don't leave us in the middle of it, but as soon as the form's over, rush to Amazon and you can get a, a, a copy uh, that's there. Uh, so beyond that, I'm going to turn it over to our guests today, the authors of that book, uh, Phil Harvey and Lisa Conyers. Phil Harvey, is the founder and former CEO of DKT International. Uh, he is, uh, that's a charitable group that works on AIDS and family planning issues around the world. He is also the head of the founder of DKT Liberty Project, uh, which is a prominent defender of free speech. And in addition to being an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, I think by now we need to add the title scholar to Phil's resume. This is uh, his fifth book. His previous book uh, was one of the best books on welfare for the low income that I've seen. It was called The Human Cost of Welfare, How the System Harms Those It's Supposed to Help. Terrific book, I do recommend it. Uh, also speaking today will be his co-author both on this book and on that book, Lisa Conyers, who's an economist and a consultant. Uh, and frequent writer and lecturer uh, around the country who works on a variety of these issues. We're happy to have Lisa with us again today as well. And then offering comment after they uh, get done talking to you today will be Tim Carney, who is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, you may also have seen his columns in the Washington Examiner and elsewhere. Uh, he's also the author of a great many books. Uh, I noticed that one of them seemed to be particularly apropos today. That's the big ripoff, how big government and uh, how big business and big government steal your money. Uh, he's one of the country's leading experts on corporate welfare. So we're happy to have him with us as well today. <clears throat> so with all of that, I'm going to turn it over to Phil to start things off and tell us a little bit about his book. Phil, if you want to tell us a little bit about uh, welfare for the rich and how uh, millionaires and billionaires keep ending up with our tax dollars. Uh, my pleasure to do that. Um, and thank you, Michael. Uh, thanks to all of you for joining us today. 
Uh, Lisa and I are delighted to be among friends and colleagues who are interested in this <clears> subject. Um, and uh, we especially thank Michael for, for uh, being our MC today and the Cato Institute for, uh, for hosting the discussion. And of course, Tim Carney for taking part. Thanks to you all. Uh, when Lisa and I started researching this uh, book, as Michael mentioned, we had just finished another book on uh, the real, the regular welfare program, welfare for the low income and the needy. Uh, and along the way, we began to realize that a great deal of subsidy payments uh, and other forms of, of uh, monetary uh, largesse um, uh, were very, very widespread and seemed to permeate uh, many different corners of, of our society. Um, looking into this, we, we found that uh, we're subsidizing an incredible number of things in an amazingly different set of ways. Uh, we subsidize energy. Uh, it's not surprising, I suppose, that the government would subsidize uh, wind and solar, but we subsidize coal, which seems a little odd in this day and age. We subsidize oil and gas. Uh, these huge subsidies to the energy companies um, were characterized by Ed Crane and Carl Pope some years ago as a grotesque avalanche of welfare for the well-connected. And that's just what they are. Uh, and the avalanche is continuing. We continue uh, to provide subsidies to these, to these companies. We subsidize farms and farmers. Uh, but as we'll discuss in a minute, a lot of the farm welfare under the, under the uh, farm bill uh, isn't going to farms and farmers at all. Uh, I'll discuss that in, in just a minute. Uh, we subsidize stadiums. Um, here's where local uh, sales and local property taxes come in, different set of taxpayers, but an enormous amount of money is spent uh, 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 helping team owners uh, who are not exactly impoverished people uh, build stadiums uh, so they can make uh, a bit more money. We subsidize sugar in one of the most grotesque and complicated combinations of quotas and tariffs and allotments uh, and price supports. Uh, and, and the result of that is that sugar in the United States costs twice what it does anywhere else. Um, uh, twice what, what the world market price is, so that anyone who buys products containing sugar, which is practically all of us, uh, ends up supporting sugar barons in, in Florida. We subsidize the tech industry. This was somewhat surprising to us, but yes, we subsidize Apple, we subsidize Google, and we heavily subsidize everything of Elon Musk's. Uh, Musk has gotten uh, so good at, at uh, uh, winkling uh, funding from local and state governments that it sometimes seems like they're lining up to offer him money to start a project uh, in their areas. Um, uh, let me begin with agriculture. Uh, the Farm Bill, which is a one virtually $100 billion uh, uh, allotment uh, every year. The last one I checked was $98 billion. So it's big. Uh, originally, going back a few decades, uh, it was meant to help struggling farmers, small farmers and during the Depression and shortly thereafter. 
uh, who might otherwise have gone out of business, uh, lost their farms and, and so on. Uh, but the Farm Bill today has almost turned that upside down. By far the biggest recipients of, uh, of subsidization under the Farm Bill are the big farms, the corporate farms, uh, the, the farms that know how to farm the system as well as farm the land. Um, the misapplication of, of, um, of farm bill subsidies uh, is illustrated in, in a few simple ways. Let me, let me give you a couple. Uh, Penny Pritzker is uh, a, a billionaire heiress in Chicago. She's probably a very nice person. I have no reason to think that she's not. Uh, but being a billionaire, it seems to me, she probably doesn't require or need uh, subsidies uh, under, the, uh, uh, under the farm bill. But she happens to own some property that is farmed or is classified as agricultural property. So Penny Pritzker got uh, $1.6 million in a recent uh, uh, decade in uh, farm payments. She's not a farmer. Why should this happen? Um, the um, uh, farm bill payments have also gone to support a pheasant farm in South Dakota. I have nothing against pheasant hunting. I think that's just fine if people want to shoot pheasants, but there's no reason why they should take your money and mine uh, through the federal farm bill uh, to support a pheasant farm. Perhaps the quintessential uh, example of misapplied uh, uh, farm subsidies is an outfit called Alamo Freight Lines in Texas, uh, which is in the freight business, not the farming business, but they, like Penny Prisker, um, uh, own uh, some agricultural property, quite a lot, I assume, and got over $5 million in 2014 alone in farm bill subsidies. So the program is unjust, unfair, undeserving uh, uh, and the recipients are undeserving and highly, highly improper. Uh, let me say a word about tariffs. Uh, we've included tariffs in the book, uh, recognizing that this is not a setup that takes taxpayer money and provides it directly to wealthy people. Uh, but the system has been shaken down and turned out so so strangely that it has exactly the same effect. And we thought it a good illustration uh, of how far the, uh, the system of uh, uh, wealth ad advantage in this case for the wealthy and disadvantage for the poor and low income uh, uh, has gone. The, let me say first, we're not discussing the Trump tariffs here. Most of us are familiar uh, with the Trump tariffs. Uh, but that's a discussion for another time. I, I want to draw attention today to the age-old, decades-old, in some cases centuries-old tariffs that we've had all along. Uh, there are 17,000 items in uh, what is somewhat laughingly called the harmonized tariff schedule of the federal government. It's a strange kind of harmony in 3,000 pages of mind-numbingly complex uh, citations of the exact amount of tariff to be uh, charged on infinitesimally small differences in various kinds of products. Uh, but it burdens uh, the low-income 
at about uh, 12 to 14 percent of their expenditures every year, and it burdens the wealthy at about five to six percent of their uh, uh, expenditures uh, every year. Uh, among other things, uh, brushes, cantaloupes, bras, apricots, baby pants, and canvas shoes are among the more highly uh, uh, taxed items through uh, import tariffs. Uh, why cantaloupes got in there and honeydews did not uh, is something I, I can only speculate about, but presumably uh, a cantaloupe farmer somewhere in the Southwest at one point went to his congressman and said, I having trouble selling my cantaloupes, could you please arrange to get a tariff on uh, imported cantaloupe, uh, uh, cantaloupes? And uh, uh, his congressman uh, worked that out. It was a very small change in the law, uh, probably went through on something much bigger. Nobody noticed, nobody cared. And now it is with us forever, along with 17,000 or 17,000 less one, uh, uh, items uh, that is almost impossible to change or alter. As Milton Friedman once remarked, uh, there is nothing so permanent as a temporary uh, policy or law or program in Washington, D.C. Uh, a quite simple example of high income, low income in our tariff schedule is a, an item of glassware, uh, which is it has two versions, two or three versions. The standard version of this glass is listed for $3 and it draws a 22.5% tariff. A slightly more expensive, uh, gussied up version of this same glass uh, that is listed at $5 or $6 uh, value uh, draws a, a tariff of 7.2%. It's as though somebody sat down at some point and said, how can we arrange the tariff schedule to advantage the wealthy and screw the poor? I mean, I'm sure nobody did that. I, at least I hope nobody did. But the way it's turned out, um, it's uh, remarkably close uh, uh, to, to being as if someone had done it. A simple example also illustrates the wastage and the nonsense and the foolishness uh, that happens when you put uh, uh, tariffs on things and don't think about it too much. Um, the um, company, there was a, a company, is a company that imports feathers. They provide uh, feathers for fishing lures and hats and decorations and so on. It turns out that feathers have a very high uh, import tariff, but feather dusters have a very low import tariff. Well, it didn't take a genius to figure out that if uh, uh, they imported feather dusters, which presumably had a low tariff because they're cleaning item uh, or some such, that they can import the feather dusters, avoid the high tariff, then pull the feather dusters apart and sell the feathers, which is what they do, or at least they did until the IRS heard about it. And, I, and they may have changed their policies now, but it's an illustration of the kind of thing that, that happens um, almost foreseeably uh, uh, when we distort uh, uh, issues in, in the marketplace. Lisa and I are often asked uh, when we do interviews, 
what would you do about these things? And in, in terms of a policy matter, this one's very easy. Just eliminate them. Eliminate the Trump tariffs, eliminate all 17,000 tariffs in the harmonized tariff schedule. Uh, they do a lot of harm. They make us pay more for everything, a little bit more for a lot of things. They benefit only a very few people and companies, and then only for a very limited period of time. Let's just get rid of them. Okay, Lisa, can you take us on to the next? Thanks, Phil. Um, so I wanna talk about some of the success stories that we came across uh, during the research for this book, because obviously, as Phil has noted, there are so many egregious examples of the ways that our tax dollars end up in the pockets of millionaires. But every once in a while, something good happens. And so I just wanted to share a couple of examples that came across uh, during my travels around the country looking for stories that hopefully provide a glimmer of hope and also uh, point readers who get the book and read it to the last chapter of the book, which talks about ways that we can fight back because it's not always a losing battle. So the story I wanna share is from Louisiana. And what happened was a bunch of citizens in Louisiana who were activists in various social causes were looking at the USA Today report on their state. And every year USA Today prints a study of the state of the states. And Louisiana always ends up down at the bottom in terms of their education system, healthcare, uh, all kinds of public services. And the people looking at this said, why is that? Louisiana is such a wealthy state. We have so many resources. There are so many mega companies that are here, all these oil companies along the Gulf. Uh, how can it be that we don't have money for these services that we're, we're doing so poorly? And they started looking at the state budget. And what they found was that since 1836, there has been a small committee of five people that is appointed by the legislature and their job is to give out property tax abatements to companies to do business in the state of Louisiana. And this was started in, at a time when they were trying to lure companies to Louisiana. So they said, okay, well, we're gonna let these oil companies come in and we'll give them a tax abatement for 10 years. So they don't have to pay any property taxes for 10 years. By then they'll be up and running and they can start paying property taxes. Well, that was all well-intentioned, but it's not what happened. What happened was, these companies came into Louisiana, they got the 10 year tax abatement, and then they went back and said, hey, we'd kind of like to get it again for another 10 years. And this small committee that nobody had ever heard of was rubber stamping property tax abatements every time one was requested, whether it was from Dow or Exxon or Mobil or whoever it was, they would just say, hey, we still don't wanna pay property taxes. And this committee would say, okay, you don't have to. And as a result, there was a lot of missed property taxes and it was obvious that this was probably a big cause of why Louisiana is so poor in so many respects in terms of how their citizens are doing. So this group uh, formed an organization called Together Louisiana and they got lots of people involved and they started going to public hearings and they started complaining about this and saying, hey, how can this be? How can we keep giving these guys this property tax abatement? All of us have to pay property taxes. Why, why don't they have to? And it was really, it was a long battle, but they won. They won in 2019, the law was changed. And it now requires any organization, any 
company that wants his property tax abatement can no longer just go to this five person committee that nobody's ever heard of and get a rubber stamp on their request. They actually have to go and present their case to local school districts, local police departments, local fire departments, and other people who have an interest in getting property taxes paid and request that and explain to them why they think it's a good idea that they get this property tax abatement. And to me, that was probably the most exciting example of citizen activism that I came across while researching this book, because it was something so just appalling when you heard about it, but nobody had ever heard about it. Once they found out, they said, hey, this isn't right. We all pay our property taxes. These guys are making millions off of our resources in our state. Why can't they pay their fair share? And so now it's up to all of those companies to either say, okay, I guess we will pay our property taxes now, or to come up with some explanation that makes sense as to why they don't have to. So that was, um, I'd like to, you know, there are more examples like that in the book of success stories, but that was probably the most uh, exciting one that I came across. And another area, Phil briefly mentioned stadiums. Um, I think all of us have heard of the Raiders new stadium in Las Vegas, that's the most expensive NFL stadium ever built in US history, uh, $2 billion stadium. And the taxpayers of Las Vegas and Nevada are on the hook for that. Uh, not for all of it, but for a good portion of it. And they are um, providing all the roads around the stadium. The team doesn't have to pay any rent for any of the property. You know, the, the taxpayers of that state are giving that team a huge gift. And some people say, well, that happens with every stadium. It's, you know, that's just the way professional sports are. But in fact, it's not the way professional sports have to be because San Francisco has a $1.3 billion stadium that hosted the Super Bowl 50 in, 19, in 2016. And that stadium was completely financed with private money. So the taxpayers of San Francisco did not have to pay a dime and they still got this beautiful stadium. And I think that as long as people are paying attention, as long as taxpayers are saying, hey, wait a minute, no, you guys have plenty of money. Sure, build your stadium, do whatever you want. Just don't ask me for my tax dollars to do it. So I'd like to say that probably the most important thing that we recommend in the last chapter of our book and that we recommend in general is look at those budgets, look at what's going on around you and don't think that you can't make a difference because you can, it just takes putting some effort together and, and calling out people who are pocketing our tax dollars. So I'm gonna, that's, that's all I've got to say. I'm gonna move it on to Michael and Tim. Michael's muted. Thank you. Uh, quickly before Tim weighs in on this, I just want to invite all of you to become part of this discussion. Uh, there is a box on the Cato uh, events page. You can add your questions there, ask your questions there or through Facebook or uh, uh, as well as uh, YouTube, I guess. And if you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag Cato events and send your questions in that way. We'll be asking uh, these folks, uh, relaying your questions to them. Uh, once more, the book in question is Welfare for the Rich, How Your Tax Dollars End Up in the Millionaire's Pockets and What You Can Do About It. It's available uh, in fine bookstores near you as well as on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I believe it's on sale right now on Amazon. Uh, and with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Tim and let you uh, respond a little bit to what you've heard and what's in the book. Great. Uh, 
Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Cato Institute. Thank you, Phil and Lisa, for writing the book. I've, I've got it right here. It's uh, it's a, a success. Uh, it's well written. It's easy to read. It's not um, it's not written by economists. Um, it's stories. It's stories of um, people who suffer from corporate welfare and and welfare for the rich. And and as Lisa was just recounting, some success stories. Um, I like that they. Uh, the definition of welfare for the rich, and I think maybe we can get in a little later to talking about what should count, what shouldn't count, but they don't just narrowly focus on the sort of the direct transfers like the, the farm payments. Uh, they also include very importantly, the tax code. And this is an interesting question for free market libertarian people um, because, well, frankly, the, the first Tea Party, <laughs> the one back in the 1700s, wasn't about a tax. It was about the Brit British uh, tea company getting a break from the tax that everybody else had to pay. Um, they also talk about regulations, and this is a huge part that the mainstream media totally misses. They see regulation as being big government versus big business. The stories uh, told in this book and a million others that we could go over show how often regulation is itself a subsidy for a well-connected uh, business and then tariffs and programs like the the sugar program, which I've always found uh, odious, that just drives up prices for consumers to enrich a handful of politically connected um, companies. So, well, first of all, the, the the book offers something important to everybody. If if you are a you know a libertarian and you have a friend who's middle of the road, or if you're not and, and you're you're watching this middle of the road person is going to understand from this book that government involvement in the economy very often, in fact, I would say regularly, accrues to the benefit of the well-connected, the people who can hire the best lobbyists. And that's not mom and pop. That's not the average taxpayer. Uh, for the left, that lesson is, is even more important. Um, and it shows some common ground, some things that uh, conservatives and, and liberals and libertarians could be uh, working towards but that currently there's bipartisan agreement in favor of these policies, but there, for people who have deeply held beliefs, there should be trans uh, ideological, transpartisan agreement against them. Um, I think the most important thing for the right there and libertarians, there's two things. One, it's educational. It, it tells you the, the nitty gritty, the stories and the, and the policies. Uh, and two, there's an important moral lesson here that I'll, I'll get to a little later. But on the education, it provides examples, and the examples are, are compelling and telling. But another important thing we need to talk about is the, the costs here. So for instance, that tariffs disproportionately fall on people who are middle class and working class, because we're the ones who are spending our money on, uh, you know, a higher portion of our expenditures go to our kids' shoes, which are being tariffed, go to a little uh, drinking glass. I'm not gonna say I spend a ton of money on feathers, but you get the idea that you, um, the, the more that your money is spent on consumer goods as opposed to a vacation in Europe or, or something like that, the, the more these things fall on you. But there's more interesting uh, examples that I think really can stir the brain. The um, uh, farmer named Greg Gunthorpe shows up here. Um, he's somebody who doesn't accept farm subsidies. Now you would think, okay, he's paying his tax dollars, his earnings to subsidize his competitors, but that's not it. The fact is that the 
other people who are renting farmland are getting subsidized. So that means that their ability to pay higher rent, their ability to pay rent goes up. So the owner of the land benefits because he's seeing the ability to pay go up. So the guy who's not accepting the subsidies, Greg, is there seeing his uh, prices go up because of this subsidy that he is, is not receiving. So that's a, a very good thing. The habit this book will get you into is remembering every time the government is benefiting somebody, there's a good chance that it's hurting somebody else. Um, another cost that you definitely pick up from reading this is the cost of complexity of lobbying of lawyers. Uh, Snuggies had to make sure that the government, uh, you guys remember these? The, you put it on yourself, it's like a blanket type thing that's got sleeves. Um, if Snuggies were considered, now Lisa, correct me if I'm getting this backwards, but if Snuggies were considered a, a pullover, then they would get a higher tariff rate. But they lobbied successfully to say, no, we're not a pullover, we're a blanket. But wait a second, can you stick your arms through blankets? So lawyers had to make a case, <laughs> this is great for the lawyers, right? They had to make the case that this is in fact a blanket, that having sleeves does not undermine the definition of I like to think some Wittgenstein scholar somewhere also got paid to, to hash this out. But the money spent on that is money that is dead weight loss. No offense to lawyers out there, but this does not add value in our economy. Um, one story, we've been talking about the president's taxes in the headlines uh, recently, his ability to um, move stuff around, et cetera, hire the good accountants has gotten him really low taxes in many years. You guys might remember about eight years ago or so, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times about General Electric paying approximately zero in corporate income taxes. And at one point, they mentioned that GE's tax division is over 900 people, lawyers, accountants, lobbyists. So just think about that. General Electric, which now is in, has not had a good last few years financially, money that you would think they're spending on making your fridge better or making a light bulb better is instead spent on paying these tax lawyers. But even worse, the tax lawyers and lobbyists and accountants then get to call the executives at GE and say, you know what would be better for your taxes? If you do this XYZ bank shot, then your taxes are gonna go down. The executives would already be doing the XYZ bank shot if it provided value and was profitable. But instead, Dead, now they're doing it only for taxes. I have a friend who wrote a best-selling book and he was told, if you want to spread your income over many years, invest in durable oil and natural gas drilling equipment. <laughs> he ended up losing like 10% of his money by doing this, but it was very profitable for him because this inefficient use of his money ended up reducing his taxes enough. So that complexity in the tax code, high rates with many loopholes, is a subsidy to the well-connected and it creates this economic cost. But the most important cost I wanna talk about, and um, Michael and Phil and Lisa have already talked about what's right, what's wrong, what's just, what's immoral, is the moral cost. And this is the main thing I would want free market advocates to take away from this discussion in this book. The pursuit of profit is not a good thing in and of itself. It's morally neutral is, is what I believe. The pursuit of profit is a good thing for this country because in general, people pursuing profit are doing so in the context of free and open competition. And when you're pursuing profit in the context of free and open competition, 
in general, not in every single case, but in general, you're only going to profit by providing something that people want at a better price than other people are doing it. And you're going to be making their lives better and giving them what they want. But the more that government creeps in, the more it becomes profitable to provide something that people don't even want to buy, ethanol, some forms of health insurance, et cetera, that we're, we're forced to buy. Or the more it becomes profitable to hike up prices and not care about quality because you regulate your competitors out of business. And so in that context, the pursuit of profit is not in fact morally just, it's in fact unjust if part of the way you do it is lobbying for these special favors. Now there's a headline in an old Milton Friedman article, the social responsibility of a corporation is to maximize its profits. Might've gotten a word or two wrong. If you read the article, he actually makes a more nuanced argument and it's important that we all remember that. It is not good for General Electric to lobby to force people to buy their worst light bulbs. That's not even morally acceptable. It is not good for the Fonjul brothers in Florida to lobby for their sugar program that keeps me from buying sugar grown in other parts of the world. That those are in fact destructive ways to pursue profit. Again, I think this book does a very good job of laying them out. Um, we can talk about the, the solutions and, and that sort of thing in the, in the question period. But um, again, I would I congratulate you, Lisa and Phil, on the book and just say, I really hope everybody who cares about markets continues to hold the fight against corporate welfare as one of the most important things that they can do, not just because it's good for the economy, but also because morally to defend enterprise, you have to defend the free and open playing field in which enterprise actually produces good outcomes. Well, thank you, Tim. And thank you, Phil and Lisa. We really appreciate your uh, joining us on this. And it really is a terrific book. And it, it's an important book, I think, uh, particularly in the political climate we're in right now. Uh, one question that's come in is just kind of a factual question is, does anybody have any estimates on how much uh, corporate welfare and subsidies to the rich there, there are? Uh, does anybody have a number they throw out? I've seen $120 billion a year in corporate welfare mentioned, but uh, in various things. But what, what's your thoughts on how much there really is out there? I don't think that it's possible really to answer that question as we discovered uh, during the research for this book is we just kept stumbling across more and more instances and more and more examples. So it's kind of a moving target and it changes all the time, but I think you're, you're right when you mentioned billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, one of the activists down in Louisiana was talking about the Louisiana situation and he said he knew he was onto something when he thought he would, was reading the number in millions and realized he was reading billions. So we're talking very big, big numbers, but I'd love to be able to put up a, a corporate welfare, you know, countdown clock or, you know, counting clock of how many dollars are involved, but I, I don't think I have a solid number. Well, my, my best guess, as which accords with Lisa's description, is hundreds of billions of dollars. The reason you can't calculate this uh, with any precision uh, is that some tax breaks, for example, are perfectly legitimate. I mean, we're all for low taxes, and if a corporation gets a tax break uh, as part of a general tax reduction, uh, we would applaud that. But when a corporation gets a specified uh, tax break solely for that corporation at the expense of their own competitors, uh, 
then we call that corporate welfare. But the distinction between the two is not always clear, which makes it just about impossible to make a precise calculation. And I, I don't think this is accidental. I think that what we've seen in the last 50 years is a steady move of subsidies away from the immediately and clearly identifiable to the somewhat hidden and obscured. And the Export-Import Bank that uh, at least I feel right about in the book, um, and the, one, one of my books had a whole chapter on Export-Import Bank, its budgetary cost is close to zero. And in fact, its defenders can point to ways of accounting that say Export-Import Bank makes money because XM is like almost a bank in the government that more or less finances Boeing and other uh, U.S. exporters trying to sell stuff. Now, it's certainly undeniably rigging the game. It's directing more finance towards Boeing's customers in China and Azerbaijan than a free market would. But if those customers are mostly paying it back and they're paying fees and all of that, and for now, you know, until for now it's breaking even effectively, the budgetary cost is approximately zero. But there's it's almost impossible to measure how much business was lost by smaller manufacturers or smaller businesses who couldn't get the loan from Citigroup because Citigroup knew that it was guaranteed if it loaned it to Air China. So it, I think it's deliberate. I mean, I don't want to say deliberate. I think that if you read your public choice theory, you'll see that lawmakers have an incentive to move both taxes and subsidies to more hidden forms, making it impossible to put a price tag here. Uh, historically, has either party been more susceptible to doling out the uh, corporate welfare favors, or is this a bipartisan thing? Oh, I would say a bipartisan thing. I, and it's also a, it's a bipartisan thing on the part of the people who are giving out the money. It's also a nonpartisan issue in terms of taxpayers that I talked to around the country who, who were, you know, appalled by this. So, you know, I traveled the country for four years gathering stories for this book, and I talked to Americans in every state, and seldom did politics come into it. I didn't know what party they were mostly identified with, because this is an issue that everybody's angry about, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or whatever. This is an issue on which all Americans agree and are frustrated about. It's almost uh, like asking uh, Mike if Republicans are better at containing uh, uh, government costs or Democrats. They're both impossibly bad at containing <laughs> government costs, and I would say probably equally bad. I, I'm going to make this even more depressing. Um, the, the people who care about it will change depending on who the party in power is. I mean, when I wrote the big ripoff in 2006, it was a free market, uh, small government book against corporate welfare, not a lot of interest. I wrote Obamanomics in 2009. The Tea Party was happening. Republicans were very against corporate welfare. Republicans were the ones who killed Export-Import Bank for a few months. Republicans like Pat Toomey were trying to kill the ethanol subsidy and the sugar program, and they were getting their way. Well, something happened in 2016, 2017, and then suddenly Pence handing out corporate welfare to Caterpillar upon his election and, and Trump explicitly protecting U.S. manufacturers, et cetera, um, became uh, acceptable and a, a rallying point. So it, the, the answer is the party that's worse on corporate welfare is the party that has power at any given time.
I guess that leads into my next set of questions. I've gotten several questions uh, uh, kind of on what can be done to, to fight this. And it's pointed out that for many of these programs, the tariffs in particular, for example, you have a real problem of concentrated benefits and diffuse contributions, to, to use the political economy phrase. Uh, these are worth uh, huge amounts of money to the people who get the benefits from it, but you know it adds a few cents to the cost of what we're importing and things of that, uh, a few jobs lost here and there. But there's, there's obviously some big beneficiaries uh, out there. How, how can people fight that? Bill, you want to that? Bill, you want to lead off? Well, I'll, I'll uh, take a stab at it. I think, uh, I mean, the example that Lisa gave, the story that she told, uh, is very illustrative of, uh, uh, of what can be done. That is, if people are well informed about what's going on in their communities, if people know that their, uh, that their own property taxes are being used uh, in a sense as a subsidy for the property taxes not being paid by ExxonMobil, uh, the likelihood of their doing something about it and interesting their neighbors and friends and colleagues uh, and their local politicians, and uh, it, it goes way up. Um, uh, we cite in the book several organizations that uh, work full time uh, to uh, illustrate, to, to track and follow and illuminate uh, the expenditures that are being made, particularly the stupidest ones or the least justifiable ones. Uh, a good one is called OpenTheBooks.com, which uh, covers government spending at all levels. Uh, all of these foundations, by the way, uh, their websites are the same as their names, so they're easy to find. Uh, the Sunlight Foundation um, gets um, data up on these kinds of uh, uh, expenditures up in real time so that you can act quickly when a change is made. Uh, and they have been fairly active in actually changing laws to eliminate some of these, these practices and are therefore worth uh, supporting or at least uh, following. Another good one is called Good Jobs First, uh, which works directly on corporate welfare. So there are parties out there working on this problem. Uh, uh, also, as Lisa's story illustrates, if you get active, if you join the community uh, um, community job, uh, volunteer for local activity, and maybe run for office in your town, uh, you're likely to uh, find ways of influencing these kinds of dysfunctional policies uh, so that just getting involved um, uh, somewhat more awkward these days of COVID-19, but uh, uh, it gives you a, a chance to find out how people in your community working together can make change in a, in a political environment. Uh, and that is at least part of what we, uh, what we suggest people can do. Lisa, you, you mentioned that there were uh, some success stories that you talk about, Louisiana and some other things at the state level. Uh, are there any success stories at the federal level you're able to point to? <laughs> Sorry, that made me laugh. 
<laughs> it's harder. <laughs> it's harder to fix at the federal level, right? Because there's a lot of moving parts. But um, there have been movement over the years. Uh, you know, I'm drawing a blank at the moment, but I'm sure there have been some successes. <laughs> but um, and that's why Phil and I talk so much about getting involved locally, because a lot of your you know tax dollars are spent at the at the state and federal level. There have been a lot of battles that have been close, as you mentioned. The sugar bill almost you know, at some point was almost removed from the, from the farm bill. There's all these almost, you know, we've almost campaign finance reform so that maybe money doesn't have such a say in politics, but you know, not lately. Um, but that doesn't mean you stop trying. You just have to keep, you know, fighting the good fight. And, um, so yeah. And one thing that I would add to what Phil said is that there's all these organizations that provide all this information, but it also needs people to tell the stories, whether it's people like Phil and Tim and I writing books about it, whether it's people like you spreading the word through media, whether it's journalists, when these stories come and see the light of day, people are outraged. So we just have to get the information into interesting stories that appeal to people that, that make them say, oh, wow, that makes me really mad. I'm going to do something about it. So I think that the journalistic and writing and media part of it is a big part of it as well. And, and Tim, you know, one would think that this would be a natural cause of the left, that, uh, that they would oppose uh, these types of subsidies and what have you, but is that really the case in practice? Not, uh, unfortunately not. I mean, there's certainly people on the left who join against these things. But for instance, when we were fighting against the Export-Import Bank, um, you had Paul Krugman, who, an economist, who could not defend these subsidies would just say, it's so cynical for these Republicans to oppose these subsidies just because Obama's in office. And then you would have liberal websites like The Nation saying, America's about to lose a really important uh, tool for competing in the world. Like The Nation magazine for Boeing subsidies and JP Morgan is not what you would have expected, but because it was sort of icky conservatives like Vero Derugia at, at Mercatus and libertarians like Vero or conservatives like like me fighting this fight, we didn't have um, an ally. And I feel like that's uh, a lot worse when people try to get rid of protectionist regulations, you know, uh, hair braider regulations that would free up women to to make money by doing hair care without needing, you know, 10,000 hours of, of training. You have websites on the left saying this is part of a scary Republican effort to repeal all regulations and endanger uh, consumers. So there's there's lots of agreement on the left on some of these fights. And and Krugman actually is good on, on ethanol. But our politics are so poisoned that anything that looks like it's too anti-government really puts people on the in, on the left back on their on their hackles unfortunately um at least one person coming in uh, off of twitter uh keep free 1215 suggests that maybe we should rebrand this as welfare <laughs> and uh and build up some more outrage that way on the other hand there's been some defense of these programs coming in a little bit uh, some people are saying, you know, don't don't you have to look at these things in net? Don't tariffs save a whole bunch of American jobs, and those people then become productive taxpayers? Doesn't building a new stadium like we did for the downtown, uh, the basketball stadium and down or, and hockey stadium downtown DC, doesn't that revitalize neighborhoods and and provide people with jobs? So aren't these things on net a good thing? Well, I would say as far as go ahead. Go ahead with Hartford if that's what you were going to discuss. 
Well, yeah, there's, so there's a small stadium that was built in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, and I went to the opening day a couple of years ago and it's a B team. They're called the Hartford Yard Goats and um, baseball team. And the owners managed to convince the city of Hartford to uh, build this stadium for their team. And they built it in a very blighted part of Hartford, Connecticut. And the argument was, well, you know, if you build us this stadium, all these hotels and restaurants are going to go up all around it. It's going to be great. Well, any developer that went and looked at the site said, I'm not building here. And there's been no development around it. And Hartford, Connecticut is basically at a deficit about the exact amount that they spent on this stadium. So I would think that there's probably a lot better things that that money could have been spent on than a baseball team for the yard goats, much as I love their logo, um, you know, come on. And that's the thing with these stadiums. I have not, I have no problem with professional sports of any kind, but I do have a problem with you asking me to pay for your stadium when you're a multimillionaire. I mean, the guy in San Francisco, you know, was a multimillionaire asking for tax, local taxpayers to pay for a stadium for him. Um, I'm sorry, not in San Francisco in Vegas. So, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of these things, sure, go about your business, make all the money you want, but don't ask me to pay for it. A lot of economists have looked at the efficiency of subsidizing stadiums and arenas. And I mean, you it's a rare case where you find near uniformity and you find near uniformity that it does not in fact provide economic benefit. And one of the reasons that it doesn't is because people don't realize that you're not just putting up something new, you're often replacing something old and displacing what would have moved in there otherwise. So the economists who use many different methodologies to try to say what to try to guess and the, and what would have happened had we not subsidized, subsidized the stadium, many different methodologies to try to figure that out have established that there was not in fact a net benefit. A lot of times the stadium's only built when the neighborhood's already on the way up. So something that would have been maybe more profitable, more com pro-community, especially a football stadium, eight, maybe 10 weeks out of the year you're playing there. Um, I mean, I guess some places go to the playoffs, but I live in Washington, D.C., where the NFL team certainly doesn't do that. But the uh, but eight to 12 Sundays of the year is not going to uh, – is not going to revitalize the neighborhood and maybe something that would have been more present as a community hub got displaced by that. And so, and then on uh, the, the trade stuff, the protectionism and, and the tariffs, I'm actually open to the idea that if you were to cut other taxes and replace it with tariffs, because that's what they are, they're taxes, and uh, not be giving a, a net hike, that if you, if you wanted to make that argument, I'd see maybe that would protect U.S. manufacturing. I have a feeling, though, it wouldn't really protect U.S. manufacturing jobs because automation would be as much of a, uh, a plague on that as, as uh, much more than foreign competition. I have time for just a couple more questions, but I do want to get a couple in here. One, uh, Phil, uh, <clears throat> getting a lot of questions that are variations uh, that essentially, look, it, it, are you just calling for higher taxes and more government spending in effect? Isn't it right to simply let people keep their own money? So if you have a tax break for a corporation, isn't that just like, uh, you know, protecting your house against a burglar type of thing? You know, we don't say it's unfair that some people have burglar alarms and others don't. Uh, you know, isn't, isn't we, you know, if taxation is theft, aren't, uh, aren't any, uh, any option to get out of it uh, justified? Or is there 
you know, some sort of negative blowback to these sort of special interest breaks? Uh, I think there is negative blowback and there's certainly negative um, economic and, and even moral uh, ob ob objections. Um, the, the extent to which um, we subsidize a specific company uh, take one of tariffs, uh, one of Trump's tariffs, for example, which which was placed on uh, clothes washing machines because Maytag and I think one other company felt that the Koreans were bringing in uh, washing machines that uh, uh, were were less expensive. Uh, it helps a few people for a very short period of time. But it harms all of the people who want to buy Korean, uh, well-made Korean, inexpensive washing machines. Uh, so my, my sense is that targeted tax breaks, and it depends, as I said earlier, on how targeted they are. A, a tax break uh, that covers an entire industry is probably uh, something we should applaud. I, you need to know the particulars. <laughs> but a tax break carved out for a single company puts all of their competitors at a disadvantage and you screw up the system. Uh, you're, you're interfering with normal competition by favoring one or two parties inside, a, uh, inside an industry. And no, I do not think it is justified uh, for saving jobs because it costs, generally costs more than it saves. Lisa and I frequently uh, found uh, uh, projects and programs, both with respect to stadiums and otherwise, that were supposed to bring in uh, jobs and were justified by uh, the parties seeking the subsidies as being job creators. And we found time and time again, when we looked back and found how many jobs had actually been created, that the cost per job was running like $600,000 each. I mean, it just yes, there were some jobs added, but at a ridiculously high price. Well, terrific. Uh, I'm going to ask one last question to sort of uh, fill this out here, and I'd like each of you to take a stab at it because I think it's an important one in the environment we're in now. COVID, uh, the shutdowns that came out of COVID, and all of that. Uh, we know there's several bills going through Congress. We already had the one relief bill. We've got another relief bill they're negotiating now that contain enormous subsidies for business uh, as part of this, all, all types of businesses. Uh, what do we think of those type of subsidies? What do you think of those? Are they justified by the unique circumstances we're in now? Are they going to certain well-connected uh, businesses at the expense of other businesses? Uh, are there better ways to approach the, the problem we're facing now, the economic uh, crisis we're in? I'll jump in first on this one. Um, the the principle that Phil laid out on the tax breaks uh, applies here. If it's a, it's a principle of neutrality, if it's widespread, it's more defensible, and it has to have a good reason. And in this case, government outlawed my local pub from opening for months. That my local pub would then get basically restitution checks from the government is fair. And if that's what's necessary to prevent my neighborhood from losing its one pub, then that's the sort of thing that I actually think 
it, given the, the shut the lockdowns, maybe they were too harsh or, or could have been done smarter. But once governments started saying you may not operate your pub, um, then uh, handouts of that sort that go to everybody by some relatively fair formula are called for. The problem is every single lobbyist then got on and said, thank you. Thank you for your paycheck protection program and for this other one that we are benefiting from. But us as an industry, we need special subsidies. The airlines got it, blah, blah, blah. Um, Boeing was looking for it. That's, that's what I oppose. In other words, everybody who's affected by the lockdowns getting some money in this extraordinary once in a lifetime thing, I was for that. But everybody else, every other lobbyist uses as an opportunity to get their special handouts. That's what I was saying every congressman should resist. Okay, we're almost out of time. Phil and Lisa, you wanna weigh in about 30 seconds each at most? Uh, sure. I think that uh, I agree uh, with Tim that the PPP, the Paytech Protection Program, had a good many uh, valuable uh, uh, properties. Uh, the problem there, again, is that we get right back to the wealthy versus the non-wealthy. Uh, the Paytech Protection Program was meant to help uh, small businesses with fewer than 500 employees. But the first people to get loans were big restaurant chains with thousands and thousands of employees. And, and uh, uh, a lot of small businesses had a very, very hard time wading through the paperwork at the Small Business Administration. So uh, I, in, in theory, I think uh, it needed to be done. Um, but the practice has been less than perfect. Lisa, yeah. quick. I'd agree with with uh, Tim and Phil, except that I feel a lot more outraged at the situation of how much money went to really, really big players. And I think that it's worth keeping a very close eye on in the next few years as we see where all that money went. Um, and I sure hope to be writing about it. And uh, I hope we're all blowing the whistle as you know the egregious examples come out. But helping the little guy, great. I'm all for that. Well, terrific. And I want to thank all of you here today. This is an important book. I mean, it's not just a good book, but this is an important book. And I do urge you to read it. Uh, once again, the title is Welfare for the Rich, How Your Tax Dollars End Up in the Pockets of Millionaires and What You Can Do About It. Uh, I do think it's, imp it's important for us to be outraged about welfare for the rich as people get upset about welfare for people who really need it. And, and I think it's important that we make that point uh, loud and clear. Uh, Tim, uh, appreciate your comments. Uh, Lisa uh, and Phil, thank you for joining us and, and for writing this important book. Uh, I also just want to mention real quick, Catherine and Mackenzie and the conference staff who helped put all this together. David and the IT people couldn't do it without you. So appreciate all your hard work on this. Uh, thank you all very much. And for all of you for coming and for your questions, sorry, couldn't get to all of them, but thank you for being part of this. Really appreciate it. And I hope you have a good, safe and uh, virus-free day.